You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am the co-pastor of teaching and community here at Forefront. I'd like to wish all of the fathers a very happy Father's Day. Let's give it up for our fathers today. Um, I'd like to shout out my dad, Bob Rodman. Um, I always like to say that he has five daughters and he's a better man for it, for sure. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the fact that this day is not pleasant for everyone. Um, Maybe you've lost a father or maybe you had a strained relationship with your dad. Um, This space is for all. So we just definitely want to acknowledge and hold space for that as well. I'd also like to uh, recognize that tomorrow is Juneteenth and it has finally become a holiday um, in many places. So um, definitely a day of freedom. Um, for African-Americans to acknowledge full independence. So we definitely thank God for that. Amen. (laughs) So welcome to the third week of our Parable Sermon Series. We are unpacking the stories of Jesus. We are looking for maybe different perspectives and some nuances that we may not necessarily have considered before. Um, I love the opportunity to be able to preach uh, at Forefront. Um, Our preaching team here, our pastors, our preaching boot campers, we're all storytellers, essentially. Uh, We all come to this uh, stage pulpit, if you will, with our vulnerable uh, stories, with our experiences, to be able to help our community grow and be edified spiritually. So um, we are sharing parables during um, this summer. And I'd like to uh, open up with a story by Dr. Christina Cleveland, who is a professor and she's an author. And she tells the story of her experience going to the dean at her prestigious, predominantly white divinity school. Dr. Cleveland wanted to share her concerns. She believed that her community was systemically racist. And she believed that this was negatively impacting her transition to the Divinity School as a new black faculty. And she believed that the systemic racism was also impacting the new students, the new seminarians who were showing up on campus. So Dr. Cleveland's desire to address the systemic anti-black racism was met with the following. In her words, the dean responded right off the bat with a full court press. She leaned forward in her throne-like chair, stared at me in the eye and said, you know, some people just aren't cut out to be faculty at Duke Divinity School. It sounds like you 
are one of them. I want to give you permission to leave. Essentially, Dr. Cleveland was trying to, was seeking change, and she wanted this dean to hear her heartfelt plea for justice. Believe it or not, this was less than a decade ago. Today's parable centers on another woman who was seeking to be heard. This story is referred to as a number of different things. The parable of the unjust judge, the parable of the importunate widow, and the parable of the persistent woman. Our text opens up with Luke 18, verse 1, and it reads, Then Jesus told the disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now, some might say, why do we need to continue with this story? We pretty much know what we're supposed to do. Why should we continue if our ending has been spoiled with no spoiler alert given? It seems simple enough. I mean, all we need to do is just pray and not give up. And then there's this notion that people have where God said it, I believe it, that settles it, and we're done here. Similarly, though, if we believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, then we are seeing scripture just as that. That's what God says. And that would include what we just read, that one verse. It should be believed and obeyed, and that's it. If we are looking at the Bible through an inspired lens, then it is the understanding that these words came down from God right to the writers, and they were spiritually touched or inspired to write these stories, letters, and the poems that appear in the Bible, which is a library of various books. So in this case, what Luke has written and what he essentially surmises, which was about 70 years after Jesus left the earth, can be considered significant, particularly because in some theological circles, Luke is actually considered the most valuable gospel. So this opening exhortation of to pray and to not give up shouldn't be minimized. However, perhaps in addition to Luke's reminders, there are some other gems. There are some other things that we can take away within this text. So let's continue with our story, picking up from verse 2. In the New International Version of the Bible, it says, he said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. In the Message Bible, it reads, he said, there was once a judge in some city who never gave God a thought and cared nothing for people. A widow in that city kept after him. My rights are being violated, 
protect me. So, who is this widow? And who is this judge? How do you see them? How do you interpret their roles? While we don't know their names or even the events surrounding the particular case, there could be this impression of this poor, feeble woman who's helpless. She doesn't have a man or a husband with her by her side, pleading her case to this all-powerful judge. It reminds me of Dorothy um, seeing the wizard, or not seeing the wizard, but just hearing his voice in the Wizard of Oz, or the Wiz. So, do you see these individuals as having very distinct intentions? It seems like we see the judge as being obstinate, as being stubborn, and the woman, essentially, as being persistent, as being committed to what she needed, to justice, as being a disruptor. In addition, these individuals both have or may have some semblance of agency. So the judge, of course, can decide who wins in this particular case. He has a very important job and task to make this decision that could potentially benefit someone. And the widow has some agency too, although not clearly as much as the judge, right? Because in some places, the widows in the Bible were not completely destitute, were not completely marginalized, were not completely disadvantaged. In some instances, widows actually had some agency. They didn't lose everything. Sometimes they experienced a slight drop in their economic or social status, and sometimes they didn't receive or experience a, a drop at all, right? But we don't know this woman's or this widow's full story. But we're just exploring now. We're just asking questions. But clearly, the judge was the one who was able to render a verdict in favor of this widow. So as the story continues, it seems that this particular judge didn't care about what people thought. And not only people, but he didn't care what God thought. We're told early on in the text that the judge didn't care what God or the people thought. And maybe the widow's actions convey the same thing. Maybe she didn't care either what people thought as she continued to come and seek justice against her adversary. Her situation must have been dire enough that she kept on coming. She kept on showing up. She kept on appearing on the docket. I wonder what things in her life she had to put on hold to keep coming. I wonder if she ever felt embarrassed about speaking up. I wonder if she ever had to reposition certain priorities and certain responsibilities in order for her voice to be heard. I wonder what that situation was that caused her to keep on 
coming. I wonder if anyone ever tried to stop her. And this is significant because sometimes there are opportunities for us to do things. And because there are individuals that we're concerned about and we're wondering about what they think about us, sometimes that could hold us back. But in the case of this woman, because her rights were being violated, she was committed to seeking protection and justice against her adversary. I remember being in a couple of positions, and maybe you can relate, where I had a decision to make. Either I was going to use my voice for justice, or I was going to be so consumed and overwhelmed with what people thought about me that I remained silent. In one instance, I happened to be in a particular meeting with someone who was in a position of authority, one who could make decisions, policies, procedures that could benefit others. And the meeting happened to be going on, and this person happened to misgender someone who was transgender. And I corrected them lovingly and respectfully, corrected the person, and while frustrated, they used the proper pronouns and then proceeded to carry on with the meeting. And at another point, they misgendered the person again. And I felt the need because, guess what? Behind closed doors, we're not going to misgender someone, right? I corrected them lovingly and respectfully again. And this person became so frustrated with me that they said, you are making me lose my place on my agenda because you're correcting me. And I didn't really care. <laughs> I needed to say what I was going to say. If I consider myself an ally, then it's not just in front of people. It's not just when I'm walking in the liberation parade. It's not just when I am just doing something public, preaching. It's behind closed doors as well. And there was another situation where I had the opportunity to either remain silent or speak up for the injustice that was happening. I was sitting in a meeting at a particular organization with about 20 to 25 people all around a conference table. And the person who was running the meeting began to talk about their vacation or wherever they went. And it was somewhere in the South, and they began to talk about them touring a particular mansion in the South. And they talked about this mansion, which was a governor's mansion of Georgia. And they talked about how beautiful the mansion was and the furniture, and it was just so incredibly lovely. And they continued to talk about this tour, and they talked about the tour guide. And then they said, the tour guide began to take us to another part of the house. They led us down some stairs. And as they began to lead us down some stairs, they began to talk about those who were enslaved in this same mansion that was so beautiful upstairs and talked about those who were enslaved downstairs. So everyone just listened. It was an interesting story. But then the person began to say how inappropriate it was that in the same breath and on the same tour, they were talking about those who were enslaved. So essentially, this person, it sounded like to me, was starting to deny the experiences of those from the African diaspora. 
they felt because the story wasn't as pretty and lovely as the upstairs was, that they shouldn't share the story about the downstairs. And I don't know about you, but maybe you too have been in some meetings where someone says something really off and inappropriate, and everyone is sitting there looking at each other. Well, this is what was happening in that moment. The room was quiet. Now, I told you this person was running the meeting, so they were the ones in authority. And these 20 to 25 people sat there hearing this really off story and began to sort of kind of look at each other. Now, I was really hoping that my white allies would have jumped in. No one said a mumbling word. And then I had a choice. Vinita, what are you going to do? And I looked to my right, I looked to my left, no one said anything. And I said, Lord, help me. <laughs> and I said, excuse me, what about the history of those individuals that actually lived in that space? Wouldn't it make sense to share their story as well? And the person said, no, 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 Vanita, it's out of context, it's out of context. And they got very snippy with me, but guess what? I was so happy that I had the opportunity to use my voice in that moment. I did talk to a couple of colleagues afterwards and I let them know that I was not happy with the fact that they remained silent in that moment when they are in positions to be able to speak. And I got a couple of apologies, but I let them know that it's good for us to acknowledge systemic racism and things that happen, but I need you to go to the next mile. I need you to speak up in those moments because it's really hard for someone who is experiencing systemic racism to be able to speak up in those moments. So it was, it's interesting that there are so many different pleas that come about where we can make a difference. And I would encourage us to reflect on those things today. Well, writer and Wake Forest professor, Melissa Harris Perry, maybe you remember her being on, w, um, on MSNBC at one point. Uh, she's down uh, in Wake Forest, as I mentioned. She interrogated this text a couple of months ago when we were at the Freedom Rising Conference. And I tell you, many of us, a few of us from Forefront um, attended that conference. And it was interesting because I was so surprised and grateful for how she interpreted this text that I was so excited that I want to share it with you all. So Professor Harris Perry goes on to say, what if this text is something other than a narrative about, about us pleading, being the pleading widow who goes to God in prayer again and again until God finally hears us? What if it's something else, she says? She goes on to say, why would God be an unjust judge? Why is God depicted in this story? Or why have we typically heard God being considered someone who's unjust? And then she goes on to say, why would God be he? <laughs> Maybe, she says, God is the pleading widow, and we are the unjust judge. Maybe it is the divine who was powerless against the free will 
of humanity. Maybe it is the divine who keeps coming to us and pleading with us again and again and again that we might create an equitable, fair, and just world. In order to see the parable in this way, to see the divine in this way, is to see the divine in a supplicating woman in something that may not per be perceived as powerful. I believe daily, as we look around, the pleading widow continues showing up on our dockets, individually and collectively, and we have a great opportunity to render a verdict of inclusion and belonging. Maybe God is the pleading widow encouraging us to speak out against systemic poverty, systemic ableism, systemic racism. Maybe God is the pleading widow pleading for us to feed the hungry and preach good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to bring freedom to those in captivity, to comfort those who are mourning, to bring joy instead of doom, to live out what it means to be a just, a just and generous expression of Jesus Christ, to experience new mercies each and every day. Maybe God is the pleading widow pleading for us to extend grace to ourselves and to others, to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I opened this sermon with Dr. Cleveland's story when she taught at Duke Divinity School and her plea for justice. While her call for justice wasn't met at this institution, she decided to resign, to resign from that toxic environment. However, she is still working for justice. She is still pleading. She is the author of God is a Black Woman, other books, and she is still doing the work. And I would encourage us to think about the moments where we feel frustrated, where we don't see change, know that if it's a toxic environment where they are resistant and unwilling to change, there will be, best believe, other opportunities for you to create change elsewhere, for you to be able to make a difference in this world. I close this sermon with the words of Dr. Cleveland. She goes on to say, Injustice runs deep in our society, but the soul's capacity to resist and transform injustice runs even deeper. The soul's capacity to resist and transform injustice runs even deeper. Maybe God really is the pleading widow Maybe we are the answer to someone's persistent prayer. And the people of God said, amen. Amen. Let us prepare now for communion. Those who are joining us virtually are invited to gather your elements together. 
those who are in the house, please know that we have gluten-free wafers to represent God's body. We have alcohol-free juice so that our children can partake and so that we can be in alignment and in solidarity with those who are sober. And we have prayer. So during communion, I would invite you to just go to the back if you'd like prayer. Um, our, a member of our prayer team, Phil, will be there as well. So I would invite everyone to come and receive communion, to hold it so that we can receive it together. All are welcome to come to the table at this time. And then please hold your communion. They're on either side. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.